0: A reminder because people are not conditioned to give thanks anymore. Maybe, you know, you are polite and you've been raised to do certain things and people just take things for granted. But to say thank you to people, sometimes it's like, oh, thanks, but they just move on. And um, we don't send thank you cards anymore. If I were to ask, when's when's the last time you sent a thank you card? Or how many of you have sent a thank you card in the last month? Oh, that's good. Some of you have. All right. I would say I won't talk about the age era, but um, how many of you under 40 have sent a thank you card in the last, you know, maybe three months? Okay. It's, and is it wrong that you didn't? Not necessarily. It's just a cultural thing. You usually send a text or, you know, or, or whatever, but, but to understand how to express thanks. And... Um, I just want to make sure that we understand it's not a dismissive action, and it shouldn't be a mandatory action. Like, say thank you. We teach you children. Maybe you had to say, say thank you for that. Thank you, you know, and embarrass your child. But guess what? They're going to learn proper habits and how to respect, how to be grateful, even if they don't want to be, right? At least they learn to be polite. But it's similar to people saying sorry without any remorse, because some people don't have any remorse. They just say, Sorry but they're just sorry they got caught, right? But as we look at Psalm 30, and in Psalm 30, David expresses true and sincere gratitude to God. And this psalm was written for a public display of thankfulness. It was a song sung at the dedication of the house of David. And this was when the tabernacle, um, excuse me, the Ark of the Covenant had been taken and it was coming back. It had been taken by the Philistines and then it was... It was not um, in Jerusalem. And even David, it, he, as he brings it, um, it is, refers to the time when it transferred the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh and eventually to Jerusalem, but they're bringing it into the city. And if you hold your spot, Second Samuel 6:18, kind of gives us the context. Second Samuel chapter six, verse 18. And uh, I'll give you a little bit of context where it says in verse 12, Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of the God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was, when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, um, Israel, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. It was a time of joyfulness, time of of gladness, but it's also a time of reminder as David is sharing this psalm because it says in verse 1 through 3, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and you have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. You know, the first thing we want to look at and uh, we're just going to go through these five ways. And one of them is to thank God, both audibly and specifically. Thank God audibly and specifically. And I think these are practical applications even for us. But as you look at this verses, it says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cry out to you and you healed me. In our society, it's all about us. It's all about me. We live in that society where the emphasis is upon ourselves. And I think it's important that we recognize and audibly tell God why we are thankful. Positionally, it represents our humility and our dependence upon him. But it is a reminder to us that we need to articulate it. You know, sometimes we just say thank you. Um, but it doesn't have any meaning. There's a guy who goes to a job interview, and he presented himself really well. And the interviewers were very impressed by him, how professional his resume, and everything seems to be great. But on his resume, there's five years missing. And they say, well, what happened here? Why is there, why is there time missing? And he goes, that was when I was at Yale. And they're like, oh, wow, really? That's so impressive. And so they they hire him right on the spot. And uh, the guy is so grateful and thankful. He shakes her hand. You know, he says, uh, "Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the for the job." Anyway, just be careful. But he was grateful they'd given him a job. But here, David wants to extol. He wants to lift up the Lord because of what he has done for David. And. He, It's kind of the picture of drawn from this dangerous well. If you think about trying to draw someone who's stuck in a well, lifted up, and pulled out, and uh, he wants to return the favor by lifting the Lord in praise and lifting up elevation. You think about elevation of victory and triumph. There's a reason why, if you look at that, the podium. You know, you have the podium. The first person is highest and then marked down. Even the elevation, oftentimes in, in past times, you have the throne was elevated position of power authority prominence you know let's see so they can see and lift it up to make the name great and so david is praising god for his victories over his enemies and not necessarily that it was a victory over a, a, a certain battle but rather the lord delivered him in so many different ways and provided and as we even see even if you go back to the time of the philistines Remember, the Israelites had brought that out and thought that it was a good luck charm. And oftentimes the battles, okay, you know, they had no personal relation. Israel oftentimes took, this, took their sight off of God. And that's why at that time idols were such a visual, powerful tool because they thought, oh, this idol will save us. And even ourselves in our own lives, sometimes we look at other items to help us for support, for help, material things, because we see them, we can touch them. But we forget God. And it's important for us to thank God audibly and specifically for what He's doing in our lives because it is God who is working and intervening. Lift Him up. You know, say, hey, praise the Lord. Sometimes, you know, you've been around someone who oh, you know, praise the Lord, brother, or thank you for this. Or they are just always praising God. You know, I'm sure many of you aren't uh, football, player, uh, football fans. But, uh, you know, when these athletes you know, lift up their voices and uh, make a mention. If you're a Houston fan, and uh, you think about uh, quarterbacks, and um, just uh, the quarterback who used to be for um, Ohio State, and I just forgot his name, uh, C.J. Stroud, and he says, you know, I just want to thank God for giving me this opportunity. I know one day you'll, you'll hate me, one day you'll, you'll love me. It changes. He understands that, but thank he is thankful to God for giving him the platform to be able to express and share his testimony. His, you know, give glory to God. And uh, I think it's a, a reminder because sometimes it's easy to give God glory when we're, when we're doing well. But what about when things aren't going well? Job says, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord. He giveth, he taketh. But uh, praise him. And here, when the ark came, you know, even his wife turned into his enemy. And... Uh, group of enemies. They want to rejoice over David, but David was triumphing. That Guess what? The, the Ark of the Covenant is coming to Jerusalem, and that represented the presence of God. And even in verse 3, if you look at, oh Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pits. So he emphasizes the prevention of death, and David uses these two Hebrew words for grave, sheol and pit, or bore, and to communicate that he felt like he was going to die. And I even think about what had stopped. If you remember the death angel that had gone through the camp. But he was brought up from the grave and the pictures of death. And God reversed what David deserved, which is why David praises him in the psalm. And so often we forget that we are sinners. We don't deserve God's glory. We don't deserve the good things in life, but thankful for what he has done. Praise the Lord. You know, that he has given us a place to meet. Especially, praise the Lord for air conditioning. While we don't need it expressly now, we can have it fixed. But when it's a 115, you know, it gets hot. You know, thank the Lord that we have air conditioning. We wouldn't be able to live in Arizona. I know it would be hard to live here without air conditioning. You can get a swamp cooler. You know, I know, I remember, you know, I had a swamp cooler. But guess what? You know, that still doesn't cool things down. It just makes you a little moist. But thank the Lord. Second thing we want to look at as we go through verse 4, thank God for his holy standards. Thank God for his holy standards because holiness brings chastening and forgiveness. It says, sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. God is holy, therefore he is perfect, but he also must be separate from sin. And if you think about David and the death of Uzzah, when he kind of moved in the story, you go back to uh, understand when they were bringing the tabernacle early and he moved it and the Lord struck him down. And you think, why? That's not fair. But to understand the holiness. The Lord told the Israelites to carry the ark on poles with Levites manning those poles. Instead, David, presumptuous, kept the ark on the cart. And that was not what God wanted. Holiness was neglected. And probably David understood that and took the responsibility. But this deep understanding of God's holiness calls on us and believers to praise the Lord for that holiness. Because the holiness does bring chastening, correction, and we can respond to that in a positive way or a negative way. I mean, most of you, if you ever had a parent who liked to punish you, you know, not punish you, but they didn't like it per se, they always would say, oh, I love you very much, but I have to do that but to understand as a responsibility to correct you and punish you correctly, not abuse you, because there were some who definitely didn't do it that way. But also the the goal was to bring forgiveness, a response, a turning of direction, to understand the difference between right and wrong. That's a challenge, is in today's world, to understand what is right and what is wrong. But God is holy, and therefore, even as a just, he must punish sin. But if we know what's wrong before God, then hopefully we can correct that because of what his word says. And God calls on his saints to sing and give thanks to God. And think about the chastening of the Lord. Sometimes we don't always recognize the chastening of the Lord. We think, oh, just bad things happen. But the world, and people ask, why do bad things happen to good people? But bad things happen to everyone. Really, why does God allow any good to occur to us, because many don't turn to God. So why does God allow any good in our lives? In 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul writes that numerous of them were sick. Remember, before you had the Lord's table, and there were those who were getting sick because they were abusing the Lord's table. And in that way, they were not remembering God's holiness. And he tells them, okay, guess what? Make sure your heart is right before coming to the Lord. Don't just choose to be flippant. And there's a, a preparation of the heart. Remember who God is. As we see, it was manifest in the Lord's table and they were abusing it. And deliberate sins against God's holiness can lead to direct consequences in our lives. And what is wonderful about God that He knows specifically where we're affected Individually, as we think about, there are, if you're parents or family members or friends, they know how to push your buttons. They know how to antagonize you or to make you maybe aggravated. But God knows specifically where to push your buttons and to touch you. Say, guess what? You're going to disobey. Guess what? I'll affect you here. And sometimes we don't recognize it. And that's where the sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, you understand that God is trying to get your attention. And The problem is we're very slow learners, especially men, the difference between men and women. Sometimes, you know, women observe details a little bit more. What color was that dress? Oh, I don't know. She had a dress, you know, I have no idea, you know? But a guy would be like, yeah, no idea. Okay, it was orange, green, no, it was blue. Didn't you see that? Had no idea. Was she even here? But women pay attention to those details. But either way, the whole point is to pay attention to what God is doing in your life. Because when we're sensitive to those details or those events, sometimes we can say, hey, guess what? Maybe God is trying to communicate to me in this way, leading me in a different direction. Hey, warning signs, be aware, you know? Speed limit signs are just suggestions, right? But if we pay attention to those warning signs, I think that it'll help us because Sometimes that chastening, when we turn to God and say, guess what? It leads to forgiveness. And forgiveness brings us back into a right relationship with God. Forgiveness isn't just simply to say, I'm sorry, and then repeat the sin. It's to bring us back into a right relationship to live for him and be blessed and to follow after him and to understand that he forgives and he doesn't hold us against it, hold those actions against us. It is an act of forgiveness that we don't see on earth. Because oftentimes forgiveness for our, our, our own response, we, we can't forget, forgive and forget. But God does, and he doesn't hold us against us. And then also thank God for his everlasting mercy. If we see in verse 5, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. What a blessing that is. You see these contrasts here. Anger is contrasted with favor, and there's some people who, you know, they have a, a temper. I had a I had a friend. Well, he was kind of a friend. He was lived in the same apartment complex as I did, and he was Irish. And nothing bad about Irish, but one thing about Irish, red hair, you know, they they have a temper, and sometimes that's why they became fighters. But it's like, okay, you know what? I, I thought he was going to go off sometimes. I had, you know, it, it was a little bit, you know, there's that close connection there's a fine line between uh mental illness and ire and anger and rage because you can flip that switch and it's like you don't know what's going to happen but this here is not that it's anger as far as righteous anger because of what you've done wrong there's going to be fun, but it's contrasted with favor i don't know about you but it's better to be in someone's favor versus someone's ang- have someone angry at you and then a moment is contrasted with life. Our life is like a vapor. It appears for a little while and then vanisheth. And then night with morning. If I were to say, how many of you are your night people like to stay up, you know, how many are morning people? You know, various. Some of you are like, I'm neither. <laughs> but, but the point is, is night and morning. And at that time, they couldn't stay up too late because they didn't have electricity, right? But we we see here, as it gets darker, the morning and night, that contrasted, light and darkness. But the whole point is Paul is expressing, and then weeping with joy. These are the cycles of life. Things are going to happen. There's going to be times where you weep, you cry, you are sad, you are sorrowful because of what maybe is going on. Maybe it's over sin. Maybe it's over what someone else has done. But there's also joyfulness. And sometimes, personality-wise, we dwell on one and not the other. It's like Eeyore, going back to, you know, someone who's like, oh, sad, you know, or, or that one person always, you know, always sad, always down. The cup is half full, you know, and, and uh, it's always going to be like that, I'll never get enough. But then there's people who are so happy, everything is, is bubbly, you know, oh, you know, that's great, you know, half glass, that'd be better than no glass, and I'm not saying optimism versus pessimism, but what it is, is as we look at this text, the contrast, it is to thank God for his everlasting mercy because when things are going well, when things aren't, God is merciful to us. Merciful that, you know, sometimes when we think when we have enough, that guess what? Sometimes you could be like, okay, I have to look out for it. You have to look out because you have to be manager of things. When you are joyful... The danger is that guess what? When you're when things are going well, okay, then I have to think about okay now it's going to go bad. But when you're when you're sad, okay, you should be grateful because then you're going to be um, joy is coming in the morning or sometime in the future. As we see here, these contrasts, and as you go through life and understand that His mercy endures forever, and if you if you understand that the reason for praise in verse 5, is it echoes one of Israel's creedal affirmations about God, that he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love from Exodus 34.6. See, the emphasis is not upon God's restraint of anger, but upon his quick release of wrath. He doesn't just simply stay angry. He forgets about it. And the accent is upon God's favor, which supersedes his desire to punish us. As a loving parent, Parents parent shouldn't be just, okay, you know, if you think about, it, you're just waiting for them to do something wrong. Bam, you know, bam. But no, not, it's not there waiting to correct you. Maybe you've had a, an instructor or a teacher or someone in your life, uh, a trainer, okay, just waiting for you to, to mess up. That's not how God is. God is joyful, and the movement from night to morning, and the, to understand that God's mercy endures forever in life, and that the joy that God gives to us is permanent. It's not just happiness. It's a joy that endures, because you understand positionally that you are a child of God, and that you have the gift of eternal life. But don't take your joy from your circumstances, because you'll never find true joy. Don't you're happy maybe you can be happy that's an emotional state those fluctuate up and down but if you find that guess what joy as job said blessed be the name of the lord when things are going well when things aren't be joyful that god is present and active and his mercy is everlasting number four thank god for confronting our pride verse six and seven First turn, now in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. You hid my face, and I was troubled. As long as we live, we're going to struggle with pride, humanly speaking. There were um, two feudal Japanese samurai families, and uh, they were very skilled in their craft, and so they're fighting, and their families and clans, and finally the oldest um, the eldest son of one clan and another one they said guess what we'll just fight it out and then we'll, it'll bring peace and the one son was very arrogant he proudly said guess what i can win don't worry because i'm the best at using the samurai sword and what i'm going to do is i will disarm him and then it'll bring peace because my defense no one can stop and so they trained they said i've been watching uh, the the moves of the other son and these two sons that were representing the two groups were going to fight it out and so they get the get to the time they bow they go through all of the rituals and they fight one another they're going through and you see it's a battle that goes over through the courtyard jumping all around he's like don't worry he t- he tells his father I can win this but in the end he goes to to th- get his sword to disarm the other guy and at that time the other son flips a sword and while he he disarms the other. Um, son of the other clan that samurai sword comes and chops off his legs and so there he is suffering it's like father i'm sorry you know i I really thought i could do it and so he ends up dying and i don't mean to make it a sad story but what happens is the other father says guess what he's brought peace you know i know my son was arrogant but he really thought that he could do everything bring peace and um how did you do it how did you defeat my son he goes well while your son was so um intent on trying to disarm me, I was intent on trying to defeat him. Anyway, you have to think about that, you might get that a little bit, but anyway, chopped off his legs, I'm sorry. But the whole point, see, that's a lesson, humility, pride, but um, what happens is, here, the psalmist recounts how he or she boasted of being secure, but came to wreck. How he boasted in being secure, but came to recognize that true security only comes from God. See, the term prosperity, the prosperity might be better rendered a confident state. There are times where we think, I can handle this. We can do everything. Last week, we talked about temptation and uh, how we're always going to face temptation. The challenge is that we think that we can do it. We think that we can handle it. But in Psalm 73, 12, it uses the same word. It's a state of mind of the wicked who foolishly believe that their resources provide all they need or that their fortune is a sign of God's favor. Sometimes we we believe that, oh, because of all that we have is good is, is because of God. And that's how the prosperity gospel. They think, oh, look how God is blessing me. But they aren't living for God. And so what occurs is, as we see in verse 6, it says, David in verse 6 takes kind of a step back and addresses the root of his problem. He understood constantly, and what I appreciate about the Bible and the Old Testament is that we have a character like David. Sure, there were some who were spiritual. Um, We think of the righteousness or the humility of Job, of Daniel, but take a, a character like David who who made a lot of mistakes. He had a lot of blood on his hands, but he also was involved in adultery, in these other sins of pride, in the census. But he was also one who, whenever, it, whenever he was confronted with it, he admitted it. And as we see here, it says, now as for me, or it could be but as for me, that word, and I, if you, if you look at verse 6, it says, now in my prosperity, I said I... Shall never move." Interesting that it uses "I" twice." And you really don't need both, because it's already built in. But what that, it's redundant, but the word f- for prosperity is only used here in the Old Testament, it can mean ease or self-confidence. But it is in the Psalm in the poetry, it, it is written in such a way that guess what "I talks about how I was the one in my prosperity. I was the one who said, "I shall never be moved." It's kind of re-emphasizing that position. But David is talking about not being shaken or being caused to be steady, stable, or unmovable. He says, here I was. I was in a position of prosperity. I was king. I had everything I ever wanted, and I wasn't going to be moved. If You think about King Darius. Uh, when Daniel spoke to him, God had blessed him. He thought, look at me. Look at all I have. Look at my kingdoms. Look at anyone, you know. Pride vaunts us up, it puffs us up, it builds us up. We think that we're, we're it. And that's the danger because what occurs is, it says that we become immovable. Let me make that reference back to that goal line defense. Okay, that if you don't know football, when they are near the goal line, usually they think someone's going to rush and try to run, run through. And the way they do it is called the tush push. I know it's kind of crazy term, but they get the quarterback and try to, these guys try to push them through to make it through the goal line, so he scores through this defensive line, but here David says, guess what, immovable, nothing is coming through, I'm so stubborn in my selfish pride that I'm not going to allow uh, anything to get through, and because of that, the pride and selfishness, sometimes those people who are in that position don't listen to advice, Don't hear those people who are giving warnings or telling them, hey, be careful, because they are so secure in their position, believing that, guess what, I'm fine, I'm okay, I don't need God, I don't need this, I don't need your help. The danger is that they are isolationists, and they repel any advice or counsel that may be godly or biblical. But David says, However, I was in that position, but thank God for confronting my pride. Imagine if you had to be Nathan. Nathan was a prophet, and God tells him, hey, go before the king and tell him that he sinned by sleeping with Bathsheba. You know, the king could say, guess what, you're dead. I don't want to hear it. I'll just hide it under the carpet. Uriah, you know, I, I, he's, no one knows about it, but God knows about it. And even in our secret sins... Even in pride that we think, guess what, no one else knows. God knows. But we think that we can handle it. But Nathan obeyed, even at the risk of his life. But the blessing we see is that David, who is in this position of king, authority to have anything he wants, and use, Nathan uses that story of here's a sheep. You know, and you take that sheep from this one farmer who, who only has one sheep, loved the sheep like a pet. And you took it, and you sacrificed it for that guest. That guest, he says, that man deserves to die. And then all of a sudden, Nathan says, "Guess what? You are that man." Boom! It's like being stabbed in the heart. Some people who are hard of heart—we use that term, hard of heart—or or or very dull in senses. Guess what? Doesn't matter. I don't care. They don't listen. But but David says, "Thank you, God, for confronting my pride." You know, a true friend is someone who's going to tell you something that you need to hear. Not going to be someone who says, hey, by the way, guess what? You know, uh, um, what you're doing is right. Oh, go ahead, you know. Take those drugs or, or keep doing that, ruining your life. Don't worry, as long as, you know, you, know you, you provide what I want. But confronting someone's pride, that's a hard thing, especially when it's a friend. But David says, thank you, God, for confronting my pride. And he says that, in my prosperity, I said I will never be moved. Lord, by your favor, you made my mountain strong, stand strong. You hid your face, and I was troubled. You made my mountain. What What that means is that positionally, you have placed me here. You are the one who gave me my reign. And... It's a poetic way of saying David's rule, which was centered on Mount Zion. God had established David king in Jerusalem. The prosperity that David experienced was all from God. Hide your face. Don't, and you ignored and rejected me. It's kind of like the silent treatment. It doesn't always work. But here, God turned his face, if you will, and there was no, um, there was nothing that, as you think about it, we can do. But thankfully, imagine this if you're crying out to God. And sometimes we think, God, why aren't you listening? Why aren't you hearing? But he does hear and act. And that's why we struggle with that. Even King Saul early on, he said, Oh, where is where is um, why isn't God answering? Where is Samuel? He was concerned. You know what the problem is that we want God to answer us in our own time, according to our timetable. But confronting. And to understand that it is our our pride. And too often the very blessings that we receive from God can lead us to sin. And fill us with prideful arrogance. Did you know sometimes God blesses us? But that can be a deterrent to lead us away from God as well. Because we must be careful not to thank God who gives us our prosperity. In times where each of, maybe at your work. Or when a Christian is lifted up. And the danger is they are filled with with pridefulness, hey, you know what, I did a really good job. And then they are given lauds and accolades, and then they forget God who brought them to that position. But here, circumstances can change, and God can hide his face, ignore, reject us, and need to be careful. Be not troubled or dismayed. It is all within his power. Finally, let me see in number five. If you look at verses 8 to 10, it says, I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood? When I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Lord, be my helper. Crying out to the Lord. You know, thank God for divine interventions. Because I truly believe that God intervenes in our life. Now, there are some some individuals who think that God, you know, do a miracle in my life, or I'll believe in you if you do this. It's like the atheist who was out, you know, he was out camping in the woods looking at the divine creation and denied God's existence. Oh, look at how this was was all evolutionary and how um, this occurred. And then all of a sudden a bear came and out of the woods and getting ready to come and and uh, he heard it coming toward him, and he's like, oh, no. And he got scared, and he's like, what are we doing? He's trying to hide, get around rocks, and he cries out to God and says, God, you know, save me. And then all of a sudden, there's this bright light. This is not a true story. A bright light comes, and, and a voice says, hey, you've denied me your whole existence, and you want me to do a miracle for you? He said, yes, please. You know, I know atheist. I was wrong. Um, but, well, then he says, you know what? That wouldn't be accurate, because as an atheist, I don't believe in you. So, tell you what, can you just... Um, change the bear, and make the bear um, a Christian, because I know that I can't become a Christian, so all of a sudden, fine, boom, light's gone, and the bear, um, all of a sudden, the, the bear becomes a Christian, and so the bear bows down and starts praying, and the bear says, Lord, thank you for this meal that you provided for me, <laughs> so if things work that way, right, no, but but the whole point is sometimes we're, we're asking for that miracle. We're asking for God to do something grandiose in our lives. Lord, if you do this, then I will do this. Very conditional. But God doesn't intervene in that way. He doesn't have to. First of all, he's already sent his son, Jesus Christ, and you place your faith and trust in him, the Holy Spirit, he, he, the power to transform us, to help us through. We have all we need. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us. By his own glory and goodness, we have the word of God to be able to live by, a standard, to know the difference between right and wrong, how to work it through our lives. He's given us other believers to help us. He's given us a body of believers to encourage us, to strengthen us. The problem is that sometimes we want to be off on our own. We want to do our own thing. And that's why the local church is such a valuable asset. Not simply be accountable to get in your your stuff. There are some people that are always going to be in your your, um, business. But you know what? That's hopefully the exception, not the rule. And the local church body of believers is a great opportunity to give encouragement, to give hope, but also to see a picture of Christ. When they're suffering and a person responds in the right way, that's a picture of Christ. When two people get married, that's a picture of Christ when they seek to live for God, when we see new life. Guess what? When we see people mess up, and then they repent, say, you know what? I'm sorry. That's a picture of Christ, and it's also the power of Christ. See, we want to see a power, oh, look, like a rocket or explosion of an earthquake, swallow them all up. But do you know how powerful it is for someone to behave in a way which is not their nature? What about this? Two children, okay? There's one toy or one cookie. Here you go. You can have the cookie. You know, that's not what they say. There's two kids, you know, asking for a cookie, and usually they're, like, fighting over it because they want to eat the cookie, especially boys. You know, boys love food. So it's like, here, you eat the cookie. And the, the younger brother says, no, come on, I want it. And the older brother says, you want it. And they say, be nice. And usually what they say is, no, tell you what, um, what's a polite thing to do? And so the one brother says, well, you know, if, if it were me, you know, I would, I would offer it to you. Then the other brother says, okay, fine, that's good, I'll eat it then you know, but to be like -like. Christ-like, to go against our natural desire. Our natural desire is to live selfishly, to do things that are in our own interest, but for someone to do opposite that. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to work in and through our lives, to ask for forgiveness, to forgive someone who has been cruel and doesn't deserve it, for us to behave in a way that is unnatural. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit, and only a believer, a person who has a true relationship with Christ, can do that. For young children to behave, it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to an adult, to ask forgiveness from a child or from someone else. It takes humility. But it also leads to joyfulness. And here, in verse 8 and 10, it says, David calls out to, he uses the word of you see there, hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me, Lord, be my helper. And as it says, I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. Why does it use that Lord twice? It's referring to Yahweh, the God who is I am, and also Adonai, which means master. So it's almost like a personal statement. It's saying, I know that you are God, the one who created the universe, the all-powerful one, but I also know that you are my master, personally, who you intervene in my life. And Lord, thank you. And verse 9 and 10 talks about the hypothetical case. Obviously, God is sovereign, but can take David's physical life. He says, what good would it be if I were dead? What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Lord, be my helper. While I am living, I want to live for you. I understand you could take my life. I deserve to die. I'm a sinner. All the things I've done. But Lord, you have placed me in this position, and now I want to serve you. It's the life of one who has been redeemed, bought back at a price. When you recognize what God has done for you, there is gratitude and gratefulness, joy. It's like being given a new heart, working in transplants. I remember, you know, having people who have been given a new kidney and pancreas. A new kidney is good, but having a new pancreas means that you're no longer diabetic. No more shots, no more insulin. It's like there's a joyfulness to understand that, wow, it's like a new, a new lease on life. Imagine you have been given an organ that otherwise you would be dead or an exhausted state, and now you have given new life, a position before God. Don't go out and waste it. Live selfishly. Think about the joy that you can bring to God who has given you that life. And don't forget God's goodness. It's like This is like a personal prayer as God intervenes in specific events in our daily lives. And let me finish with this. Because thankfulness leads to praise and joy. Now, if you know me, I'm not very good at praise and joy, happiness. I'm kind of sober, you know, just my nature. But there's some who are much happier and bubbly, you know, different ones. But if you get me in the right mood, I, I can be pretty fun and happy. But just how life is. But if you think about it, it says here, verse 11, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. I remember the song Footloose. I'm like, oh, dancing in the Bible. Well, there's dancing in the Bible, but it's not the dancing that Western society thinks of as dancing. There's a joyfulness, happiness, dancing. There is like before the Lord understanding, guess what? You know, I, there was a, used to be an old commercial, and I'll try to do it without embarrassing myself. But if you remember, there used to be a, a, a commercial, some of you are older, for Toyota, and they go, Toyota, right? I don't know, do you remember that? But the whole point is that there's an expression of happiness. Okay, joy. Um, the little leprechaun, there's all these pictures of joyfulness and happy, jumping, jumping up and down. You know, even we teach the kids songs, jumping up and down, jumping up and down. Jumping up and down, sing Hosanna. Praise to God. It says, you have turned my mourning into dancing, you have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. There's those contrasts again. I've gone from this state to this state. I'm no longer a sinner who deserves punishment in hell, but I'm your son. I'm a child before God. And because of that, you will give me eternal life and praise, and you can look forward. You have a new future. If you're here this morning and never placed your faith and trust in Christ, if you're not sure if you are to die today that you would go to heaven, I would encourage you that you could know for sure. The Bible says, these things have I written under you, that you might know that you have eternal life. And if you hear this morning and have that, where's your joy? Have your happiness. You know, you can get bogged down with uh, the stresses of life. Car payments, house payments, the stresses of relationships oh here come. I remember talking to some and like, oh, no, I'm going to my in-laws or I'm going to my family members, you know. Behind every successful man stands a surprised mother-in-law. But, you know, what happens is you have the family reunions. Oh, no, you know, the stresses or there's uncle or cousin so-and-so or uncle, you know, that watch out for. It becomes very conflict and volatile. But don't lose the joy and happiness that comes from understanding before God. Oh my Lord, I will give thanks to you forever. The psalm ends with that expression of desire to praise God, that my soul may praise you. From the depths, it is declaration of thanksgiving. I will give thanks to you until tomorrow. I will give thanks to you till next week. What does it say? I will give thanks to you forever. Thanks and praise to God is a dominant theme throughout, and it's Important for vital for both corporately and individually. And I thought we'd end with this. If you have your hymnal, or if you know it by heart, it's called the doxology. We don't sing it very often, and we should. But right on the, if you have the hymnal, which is under the probably under the pew, pew, boy, that's an old, under the chair in front of you. If you want, it's right on the inside cover. Some of you may know it already. But praise God from whom all blessings flow. If you don't know it, we'll just try to sing a cappella. But uh, I'll try to start off not too... Lo, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him, all above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We're gonna do amen. 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 Heavenly Father,